You are listening to Serve, Protect, Lead, a podcast from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, where you'll hear from law enforcement leaders sharing wisdom, insight, and perspective. My name is Juliana Davis. This episode is funded by the U.S. Department of Justice's Cops Office. The department's full disclaimer notice is available at the end of this podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the presentation are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the IACP or the COPS office. Thank you for joining us today for Officer Suicide Prevention and Intervention. Today, we're joined by Dr. Robert Cipriano and retired Deputy Chief Diane Bernard to talk about Officer Suicide Prevention and Intervention. Before we begin, I'll have both of our speakers today introduce themselves. Dr. Cipriano. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Uh, My name is Rob Cipriano, and I've been a police psychologist going into my 18th year at this time, and been doing a lot of what we call interventionist work. Uh, Police psychology is comprised of four particular domains, and I'm only practicing uh, one to two of those domains here at Fort Lauderdale Police Department, which I'm currently, that is my assignment. In doing the work of police psychology, There's assessment, there's consultation, intervention, and operational. And during those times, sometimes they can cross-pollinate roles. And primarily my work is focusing on intervention and working directly with the officers and their respective families. Prior to that, uh, I had a lot of work and experience just in public safety, collectively working in corrections, and also working with a portion of individuals in different public safety realms, EMS, fire, and military as well. Thanks for that, Rob. And Diane, would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. And I appreciate also the opportunity to be here with you today. My name is Diane Bernhardt, and my current role is the Executive Director of Concerns of Police Survivors, also known as COPS. Um, The other COPS, not the one within the Department of Justice, but the one that uh, supports the family members and coworkers of officers that die in the line of duty. Um, my role prior to that was to work as the, well, when I retired, I, I worked for 23 years uh, with the Columbia, Missouri Police Department retiring um, as their deputy chief. My work in this arena stems from just my personal experience of working with officers, being one, coming up through the ranks, experiencing the trauma that, you know, nearly every officer will experience during their, their careers. And then afterwards, after retires retired, having a, an opportunity to visit with so many officers that are now currently struggling to get the help that they need dealing with the trauma that they go through as part of their careers. All right, so we're going to talk through some of the barriers that are related to officer suicide prevention and intervention. Rob, can you talk about some of the common barriers that prevent an officer at risk of suicide from seeking help? Uh, the majority of just in my experience in doing uh, this type of work for the last you know 18 years uh, generally is a concern that I may lose my job, right? As if I'm speaking for the officer, that I may lose my job, that I may be discovered by command staff or be demoted if I'm up for promotion. And generally we talk about stigma, right? Stigma is the poisonous seed that can fuel a condition. It's comprised of ignorance plus fear is the way I kind of dissect it and understand it. And a lot of times what happens in my experience is there is that general level of mistrust. So if Officer Jones, if you will, just using a generic name, is now seeing a police psychologist or seeing a behavioral health clinician, 
Um, and I find that out as Officer Smith. Well, I don't know if I can trust Officer Jones. So that's generally kind of what starts happening. And, you know, certainly in a position of, you know, high impact things, you know, there's no holds bar. Things can go haywire in a second in an uncontrolled environment out in the community. You know, that level of trust officers really depend on that support system, you know, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. So there's a lot of times where, in my opinion, if command does not embody the same type of mindset, that tends to trickle down and kind of spills over into actually even very uh, young officers coming on. If they get tainted with that philosophy, you know, that really can kind of create the wedge as it as it really stymies over the years. And when that wedge gets significant enough, it certainly can turn into a crisis. So that's kind of why I look at stigma as a way that, you know, very similar to, you know, any kind of uh, distortion that you really want to use education to kind of pilfer through that and break it apart. You know, the other aspect that I've noticed just over the years is sometimes officers experience a level of impatience and that impatience is really a product of their work and their assignments out in the field they just generically speaking ask somebody to during a traffic stop to give someone their license and registration they're generally not just looking at the license and registration they're looking inside the vehicle they're looking at you know aspects of what could be harmful to them what could be an officer safety issue so sometimes that also spills over that level of impatience And when that populates, sometimes that can be a barrier, you know, especially if somebody tries to reach out to a behavioral health clinician and then gets a three week appointment in advance and says, well, geez, you know, I really, I need to get this issue resolved today. I tried that, you know, one and done and it didn't work out. And for whatever reason, it left a bad taste in the police officer's mouth and uh, their family if, if it was a family issue. So those are some of the levels of barriers that I see that tend to spill over into, you know, making that first phone call or hearing it from another officer, you know, to resolve any kind of issues that that may require some type of uh, behavioral attention. Yeah, and just to piggyback on that a little bit, one of the things that I'm just from a personal experience, I I think back of going through the police academy as a a very young, um, young person and how intimidating that was. And I remember that one of the things that we were we were judged on is how we could go into a situation and take control of that situation. And then fast forward to field training. And, and again, you're judged by taking control and a police officer's whole role um, when they respond to calls is to take situations that are out of control and to bring control to them. Um, so the control piece is, it becomes a really big part of the culture of police. And I think anytime a, a police officer feels slightly out of control, um, it's, it's very traumatic to them just because of the whole um, culturization of, of becoming a police officer. And you don't want anybody to know that, that you're not completely in control or don't feel completely in control of your own situation and you know how that could affect, then later affect your job. And so that, that big, that issue of control, I don't know if we talk about that a lot, um, but I think it's a, it's a really big deal. And I think, you know, to combat that, I think we need to start, you know, culturally talking about how all police officers see traumatic things throughout their career. It can be expected. You should be prepared for that. And strong and, and capable and competent police officers deal with that trauma by getting help right away and sending that message that it's, it's completely normal versus, um, you know, how I grew up in the system where it was if you were felt out of control, you tried to hide that 
Um, and you also didn't want your fellow police officers to necessarily know that either. If you were trying to, you know, measure up and, and the backup that they wanted you to be, you didn't ever want to let anybody down. And so I think that that issue of control is, is definitely prevalent and uh, has to be com uh, combated. Thank you both for that great overview of some of those common barriers. Rob, you mentioned a lot of different components that go into preventing officers from seeking help. Can you provide a couple of approaches to overcome those barriers, such as that stigma of losing their job or issues of trust and confidentiality? A lot of times what can happen, you know, with families and, and generally one of the things that I like to talk to family members about, you know, just to generally ask open-ended questions, you know, um, from a family member to a police officer. Sometimes police officers are very reluctant to kind of regurgitate, if you will, their day, especially if it was a day that could be either monotonous or certainly could be something traumatic they experience on a dime, depending on the heartbeat of the community, depending on the municipality size, depending on you know, a lot of different factors. So sometimes those officers are reluctant. So family members that are somewhat, in a sense, kind of coached, if you will, that have a more of a, you know, an open communication style to be able to kind of, you know, make sure that, you know, there's non-judgment, you know, if that officer is speaking freely and speaking his or her mind, I, I think that's very, very helpful coming from a family member to a police officer. And one of the other things is, when you have a department that really embodies, and I, and I kind of go back to this, that no holds bar attitude and is less punitive as opposed to more pro-social and invested in their employees, I think that's a huge difference, especially, you know, when we talk about the theme of wellness that really kind of walks the walk for the agency. So, you know, in those types of situations, you know, that personifies, that personifies and trickles down. And a lot of times, you know, if there's, aspects of a family support meeting that maybe the the captain or the major or somebody in kind of high standing can kind of promote through the unions if you will we utilize here at fort lauderdale our union is very very pro wellness and all about the employee so we utilize the unions quite a bit to try to get that message across to family members and then we take that opportunity um, and we make it free of charge for that family member, like, like a family support night to attend. And that's where we gently start kind of using training and open dialogue in, in the sense, not create a session per se, because there's ethical constraints with that, but just leave it as what we call, we use a fancy word, you know, psychoeducational, right? Or we just use more of the educational part to where it's an open forum. And then there's resources that are provided to that family member at that particular meeting. And, you know, we make it fun. We make it eventful. So, you know, we may bring in, you know, obviously food or, you know, some type of activity or, you know, kind of shelf it as or coin it rather as a family night. Even have somebody, if they have small children, watch the kids where they could see their children, you know, but somebody that would be there, you know, kind of watching the children while he or she or both family members are able to actually view and participate in that open dialogue and in that uh, support meeting. So that I think is a huge part to really mitigating a lot of these barriers is really make it conversational, really start looking at, you know, educating command and support from the top down to get them to understand and buy in the concept, uh, buy into the concept. And, and certainly, you know, that starts kind of really breaking apart that stigma. And thanks Rob, just to add on to that a little bit, just thinking about, um, 
you know, raising my family and a law enforcement family. My husband was also a law enforcement officer, which I know a lot of uh, law enforcement officers, officers do that just because people understand you a little bit better sometimes. Um, but but the, the the clear thing that happens when, when an officer decides to take this career, their family come along with them for the ride. And um, when that happens, I think some of the cultural traits of the law enforcement officer over time, um, the family also starts to, to uh, display some of those traits. They tend to be more protective of those officers. They become to be they begin to be very aware of when the officer is acting strange. It may be that the officer is acting strange, but they also know that the huge risks that they would take should they call um, someone to uh, seek help for their officer. They know the job could potentially be at risk. At least in their minds, that's what they're that's what they're thinking, and that's. That's a huge barrier to overcome, and I, and I love some of the strategies that, that Rob just um, mentioned there. Um, the other thing that I want to make sure that we don't uh, underestimate is the access to resources. You know, in Fort Lauderdale, it, it sounds like you guys have a state-of-the-art program there for your officers, but that is that's actually not the norm, especially in some of our rural communities and our smaller police departments. Um, they just don't have the access to the resources that are in some of the um, uh, some of the larger uh, metropolitan areas, and so I think there's a big there's a big uh, issue with access to resources. I think we need to be creative in how we do that. Um, they do need to be confidential because of what we've already talked about, which is the the huge fear that something's going to happen to their job. Um, so the confidentiality piece of it is really important, but so is that access. And I think if if 2020 has taught us anything. Um, as frustrating as this year has been, it has really taught us of the different ways we could creatively reach out to people. And I and I think of that and 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 growing you know my family growing my family through my career. Um, if we had had access different times to to someone we could chat with confidentially, um, we really didn't have that in Columbia, Missouri. They're a little larger now than back in the 90s and, and early 2000s, but that wasn't really an option. And I think back about how that if that had been an option, would we have used that or not? And I think in today's day and age, especially after 2020, there may be an opportunity there. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I really feel like access to resources is the biggest uh, barrier in, in the, them knowing that they're confidential. You both touched on some really good points about the role that off, that families have in supporting an officer. Diane, can you share some common barriers that prevent family members from seeking help for their officers, as well as how families can overcome those barriers? Well, I think what I was just answering there just a second ago is is us, I think as a law enforcement culture, as our leaders, I think we need to be creative. Um, I, I don't think we should continue to do what we've always done and expect the outcome to be different. Um, the, the mistrust is a reality. Um, the uh, fear that something's going to happen to their jobs is a reality, whether it's real or not. And from my perspective as a law enforcement administrator, many times it's very much not real, um, but to them it absolutely is. And so until we overcome those barriers, we're, we're not going to make a, a big change. Um, that's why I bring up different other ways creatively that we can put the resources right in those officers' hands confidentially um, where they, they have access 24-7 um, and their family members have access to someone that they can trust. And then just changing the culture from the law enforcement administrator and their agency down, saying that... Um, Basically, strong officers who experience trauma get help in sending that message. We know that increasing awareness of warning signs of serious suicide risk and immediate risk 
can help to prevent officer suicide. Diane, can you talk through some of the common signs of distress that family members should look for in their officer? I guess the first thing I would want to say is that it doesn't look the same for every officer, just like every officer doesn't react to the same trauma um, the same way. It's, it all comes, it's all based on, you know, your background and your experiences and your ability um, to, you know, interpret those based on your background and experiences. And, and everybody's going to react different. So we can, we can give a list of distress signs, but the reality is, it's, it's, is I would look for behavior that's different. You know, if you're, if you're an officer who generally is pretty jovial and, and uh, open to go out and do fun things, all of a sudden isn't, or you, you see the temper much quicker than you normally would. Um, those are a couple things I look at. I'd also look for behavior that is really flat. And I describe flat by just the, the non-emotion, um, sometimes the, um, because of the, you know, the hyper-vigilance at work and always being ready for the highs and the lows that problems that before would have been big problems um, when they're when they're not working, all of a sudden it's just pretty flat and there's just not the reaction there. And when, when those kind of things start happening, it may be time to start getting some sort of professional intervention to, to, um, to talk some of those things out and see if there's something going on there. There may or may not, but at the same time, it, it, it is always, it's always a good, um, it's always good for our police officers to have a chance to, to empty their bucket and, and basically just address those, those differences that the family members are seeing. I'd like to just add a little bit to um, what Diane is mentioning, and she's absolutely spot on um, when we're looking at some of the common signs of, of distress that family members should look for. You know, Diane mentioned the quick temperament and, you know, what I call the zero to 60 uh, mode. You know, you're in the grocery store or you're in a bank and you notice your partner is, you know, kind of almost the reaction doesn't match the infraction. It's kind of what I call it. And you kind of like take a step back and say, geez, you know, what, what's going on there? You know, maybe the person had to wait in line longer or uh, maybe it was misread. Maybe, you know, he, you know, he or she is, is looking at it as, well, they were, they were snappy to me. You know, the other partner is looking at them and saying, well, not really. I mean, you know, that was, you know, a normal response. You know, there's, there's five people behind and you know, people are kind of waiting in line. And, and then maybe that, again, that action didn't match the reaction. So, you know, that's something clearly to look at. Um, I look at a lot of conflict between partners. Um, one of the things that I've noticed over the years and just working, you know, thousands of hours in, in, in the clinical room uh, with police officers is conflict, you know, kind of the pink elephant in the room. Um, you know, what's happening between uh, each other behind closed doors? Um, is there a, is there a buildup? Is somebody giving someone the silent treatment over periods of time? And in those types of situations, you know, that buildup, if it never gets uh, dealt with healthy in a healthy way or purged in a healthy way, it tends to build and it will manifest and display itself in other real life scenarios, whether it be more at home or out in the community or certainly amongst coworkers, etc. So conflict is something, you know, to really look at isolation, where you start noticing uh, officers or uh, public safety that do not want to now commingle doing things that uh, are non-police related or non-public safety related as far as people that they're hanging around and maybe just opt out or say, listen, I, I need to shelf that right now. I'm tired. I need to kind of, you know, you know, recharge. I had a long day. 
and you start noticing that pattern of just more and more isolation. And, and that certainly can be, you know, a sign where that person is feeling alienated and to just gently kind of try to engage that person, you know, almost fake it till you make it. You know, I've had plenty of personnel that will help their partners and, you know, talk with them and say, hey, just come with me, you know, just kind of be my, be my backup for, you know, going to, you know, wherever, you know, you don't even have to say much, but just, you know, get in the car and ride along with me, you know, and it kind of gets the, you know, the oil and the, and the wheels greased, if you will, just to get that person out of the house during their off time. So that's another thing that I've seen. And then obviously some of the other signs that are a little bit more overt, uh, drinking, you know, maybe drinking every night or needing a nightcap uh, just to kind of go to sleep and, uh, you know, something to take the edge off. You know, those are things that certainly family members can be on the lookout for and, uh, you know, recognize, you know, hey, you know, there's something maybe going on with my significant other. Thanks for that great overview. And Diane, can you talk a little bit about how family members can learn more about those signs of distress and other mental health risk factors? It's really actually very encouraging that over the last five years, there's just been a really sharp increase in the amount of time that um, the leaders and the organizations that represent law enforcement have spent on this, um, such as the IECP, have spent on this topic of officer wellness. And there's been a number of uh, materials that have been put out there. You can go to the IACP's website. You can look at the Department of Justice. You can go to the COPS website. You can go to the labor union's websites. You're going to find a myriad of information that's out there. It went from nobody is talking about it to a lot of people are talking about it right now, which is super encouraging. Um, I also would encourage um, our, our family members that are seeing distress to just reach out to someone in their area. You know, reach out to some of their, their officers, um, maybe an officer's trusted friend to talk to them about that, to see what resources are available from the agency. Hopefully they have a good contact already with their agency that they can reach out and find out what's available to them. Um, there are also some confidential national um, hotlines that you can, you can reach out to who can steer you towards resources potentially in your area. Um, they're very readily available with a Google search on your on your uh, website or on your web on your computer, and uh, they're 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 much more available now than they were uh, years ago. So I would just uh, encourage a little bit of proactive searching and then not being afraid to reach out to to your agencies and see what is there. Because a lot of times there's things there that people just don't know about. Yeah, and I I absolutely uh, Diane is spot on on that. I think that is a uh, an outside the box approach, um, you know, that where you start seeing, you know, some of that critical thinking, right. You know, our officers and, you know, are very, very good with critical thinking. I think that's one of the things that, you know, collectively we look at, uh, within the law enforcement arena when, you know, officers are going through the pre-employment process and going through their, you know, psychological backgrounds, et cetera. Um, to add a little bit to that, I, I think one of the key things is this is a real, in my opinion, um, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, this would be a great opportunity for agencies to really kind of start broadcasting some of the things that I mentioned in, in some of the earlier questions for, you know, working in kind of, in a sense, um, supporting the unions, right, to where the unions are kind of can be like a neutral ground. They're not quite, let's say, you know, department commanders, if you will, there's a, a level of that legality privilege. To where if the unions kind of personify, you know, family support meetings or, you know, you know, this is an area of focus that, that we're, you know, trying to cover, whether it's the PBA, the FOP, you know, those are big, big ones that that might be 
kind of that middle ground for family members to feel a little bit more safe and to be able to reach out knowing, hey, that might not necessarily get back to, you know, to the department or just emphasize it, you know, more kind of from that confidentiality principle, you know, if some of them are held under uh, under confidentiality principles. The other one is chaplains, um, you know, reaching out to chaplains. Chaplains also hold a level of confidentiality. And I can just speak for just one of the chaplains that I work with directly here, you know, also, again, sometimes they don't want to meet with a behavioral health uh, specialist, which is certainly their uh, their privilege. But, you know, chaplains can be also a conduit in that situation. So chaplaincy, uh, getting chaplains involved, finding out who chaplains are, uh, families members may be able to kind of use chaplains in, in that regard as a conduit and uh, almost kind of like testing the water, if you will. And then I think the last group, um, which in, in my opinion, uh, if an agency has one, uh, is one of the most important are your peer support team members, right? Uh, finding out if family members could, uh, you know, in a sense, inquire or query uh, if uh, an agency has peer support. And if it's in a rural area, you know, certainly that, you know, that would potentially maybe be a, a problem to troubleshoot. But, you know, some of the larger agencies, that's now certainly from the West Coast on, um, you know, that, that's been a, a growing trend of, of just really learning not only about wellness, but learning about peer support members. Uh, we're very blessed here at Fort Lauderdale. We have a, a, a phenomenal peer support team. Uh, for the past 20 years. So they've acted in, you know, tremendous capacities to be not only helpful, but also be that conduit to family members and how to even start a peer support team, right? So, you know, somebody in support services, maybe having the option of, you know, just doing some general reconnaissance to try to learn about having a support team and maybe having a liaison, they could reach out to family members. Um, Use of technology is another piece, right? Is it being advertised on Facebook? Is it, you know, or some of these these other platforms, these social media platforms? So, you know, there's a couple of different ideas there. Um, certainly not, uh, you know, one uh, area is going to be, you know, um, a, a problem uh, solution for all, but, you know, th that might be something to consider. Rob, just to piggyback off that, one more one more resource that we haven't talked about yet is also is uh, some of the spouse groups that um, agencies have um, available, or that the spouse groups have organized themselves. The spouses have where they have you know periodic um, meetings where they can get together, or perhaps bring in somebody to talk about what to expect um, being married to a law enforcement officer, or to talk to them about what resources are available to them. Those informal sports, uh, spousal support groups, you know, that, that are out there, those are invaluable because if you think about it, those that's the peer support for the family members. Where you know, if you, we talk about peer support for officers all the time, all the time, but that peer support for the family members is important too. So, um, if there's not one of those in the area, if you're listening to this and you don't have something like that, it's something to absolutely consider because uh, my experience is that with those is they can be remarkably effective in providing that family support for you know, a spouse to a spouse or how to handle a, an issue with a, a child of a law enforcement officer. If you have those groups, sometimes you'll have a, a built-in resource that is literally just a, a text message or a cell phone call away. So we've talked about some common warning signs and risk factors. Diane, can you talk through some in-home safety measures for when there are concerns about an officer's well-being? Absolutely. This is definitely a very complex topic and it's a very difficult question to answer because I think that it can it can literally depend on the, the situation that you have there. But 
one of the things that, you know, I would just stress that if you have a situation like that is to be, you know, be open up front about it on the, on the, on the front end of that. I think there should absolutely be a conversation, maybe not during the time of a crisis, but when things are not in crisis mode, just to talk about, you know, just to say, I am concerned, you know, one spouse can say to the other, I'm concerned about what I'm seeing. I'm concerned about you. And let's come up with a plan that can make me comfortable with, with these fears that I have and that you could also live with knowing that, you know, you have to, you know, if we're talking about having a weapon in the house, you have to, our officers have to have those. They have to have weapons available to them. But, you know, legitimately family members can have concerns with that. So just having an open conversation about that, about these are my fears, these are my concerns. Let's talk about a safety plan that could, you know, on your worst day, which may not be today, but on your worst day, but I can make sure that you can also you can have at least have some time to stop and think and, and have a plan, have a safety plan in place. Um, loss of freedom um, is a big deal to police officers and having their gun taken away from them is a really big deal to police officers. And that in itself can cause trauma. So how that is handled is, uh, is really important. And I just think that open, honest conversation that's caring and also is practical and uh, acknowledges that that elephant in the room of, um, you know, it, it's really a big deal, that the issue with the officer's uh, weapon. So if you can come up with a plan that could could safely secure that weapon while the officer still has access to it, but maybe not as easy access where they have to um, maybe have an opportunity to think prior to having access to that weapon. Um, that's just one idea I have out there. It's, it's, it's very, um, it's a very difficult question to answer. Um, and even for our retired officers, that, that issue of having the, the weapon accessible to them versus not. And we all know that the more time that it takes for someone who, you know, is experiencing, um, you know, ideas of suicide, the more time they have to stop and have an intervention or stop and to think, um, if they're able to think that through, um, the more time, the better. But it's also important to acknowledge the fact that that, that weapon is, um, it's, it's kind of a, a symbol of part of their identity sometimes. And so just acknowledging that elephant in the room is really important. And I hope, Rob, that you have a better answer than that for, uh, for, the, for our audience. No, you are absolutely point on, Diane. And um, I, I absolutely agree wholeheartedly. A couple of things that, that I'll just add, you know, uh, you know, in tandem with Diane. One of the things that really, really is important in having a knowledge basis of is when, when Diane talked about the element of control, within control, there's also what we call almost the psychological aspect of saving face. And saving face is basically being creative and being creative in the sense, in being transparent, but being creative in the sense of non-embarrassment. A lot of times what happens with law enforcement crises, and especially the ones that kind of go down that, you know, very, very dangerous road of, of suicidality is embarrassment. Embarrassment to a police officer, unfortunately, can uh, turn to humiliation very quickly. And with humiliation, depending on the different degree and the circumstances, that can start kind of, in a sense, adding or cumulative effect, if you will, uh, for that person to spiral out of control. So I think first and foremost, the safety plan is absolutely uh, spot on, having that conversation preemptively, but also being mindful for that family member to know that embarrassment is a trigger and embarrassment turning to humiliation. So saving face, 
in kind of a, a case in point that kind of, you know, many, many, many moons ago, officer goes in, you know, has a medical uh, crisis, but that medical crisis, when he or she uh, gets discharged from the hospital, now starts having some emotional challenges, is out of work, things of that nature. Uh, you know, maybe they're, you know, that individual is, is struggling, you know, I, I, I need to be back out there for whatever reason. We, sometimes we don't put enough stock, if you will, into the medical aspect of, of what may be causing that. So that might be something that kind of for a family member to kind of keep in the back of, you know, their mind is now that my significant other is having a problem or, you know, there's some emotional aspect to what's happening, you know, this now kind of in the back of that family's member, family member's mind can be, well, geez, you know, I know that person, you know, my, my significant other had, you know, some medical challenges that might be an avenue to at least start a conversation that way. It's not to the point where it's foreign or it's fragmented, but I think that's a very, very key aspect for family members to understand. And to almost be on the lookout and to have that creative solution um, in the back of their mind for saving face for their significant other and their family members as well. And, and one other piece to that, uh, in my opinion, is making sure that, you know, there are, there are resources put in place, right? So resources, again, having that trusted, uh, could be a friend, could be a peer that, you are now, because the police officer is used to being in control, asking that police officer, who do you trust the most aside from me as your family member? It may be a close friend. It may be a retired officer. And making sure that that officer is at the helm, making the decisions. Is it okay that I ask John or I ask Mary to come to the house and, you know, and be with you right now along with me? Not leaving that person alone. And that's also now a, a, a step in between before anything, you know, severe or, you know, kind of draconian, if you will, measures get taken place, such as an involuntary type of hospitalization or, you know, a situation that, that would reach that magnitude. So I think those are two elements that I would add, uh, the saving face component in, in putting the, the officer in the, uh, as the pilot or the captain of the ship in that situation in control and asking them along the way, who do you feel comfortable uh, as part of your support system, you know, as we kind of, we go down this, this road and, and we try to help you. All right, thank you both for that great overview. Now we're going to go into a section on offering support to law enforcement officers. We've heard a lot about the different strategies that families can implement, that officers themselves can implement. Diane, can you talk through some strategies that an agency can implement to encourage officers and families alike to access mental health resources? Personally, I, I think the, the most important piece have out there is, is to establish a, a peer support team. And I say that because the person the officer is most likely going to go to is somebody that's been there, done that, and has walked those shoes, and they can trust them. And they don't necessarily feel that talking to them is going to affect their job. And uh, there's been so much progress made in, uh, in setting up in instructions on how to set up a peer uh, support team. Um, they're readily available. And if it's not already happening in your agency, it absolutely should be happening. That would be the number one. Um, I'd also, you know, encourage what uh, Rob spoke about earlier with the chaplain programs, having them readily available. Sometimes that is a great resource for uh, an officer to reach out to. They, they, they usually trust a chaplain and don't feel... Um, like it's going to necessarily affect their job if they go 
see a chaplain. So I think those are those are two are really good um, programs that have been around but maybe have been underutilized. Um, the other thing that, I, that I've been seeing, which is very creative and I think is, is kind of the way of the future where, where we may be going, is I, I've seen things that, are, that will put help like literally right in the officer's hand in a, in a cell phone, in an app or something like that where they can from their phone confidentially connect directly with a mental health provider or an EAP pro- provider or, or um, peer support right from, their, right from the confidential, confidential um, aspect of their cell phone. And um, having that as an option is so forward thinking because our, young, our younger officers are so used to being able to do almost anything through their phone and their families as well. And just, there's an inherent trust that when you, you know, do something on your phone, there's a level of privacy that is there, obviously not in every aspect. But um, I think that's extremely creative and I think it could be the way we're going in the future with accessing help. Um, so I think that having a, a myriad of strategies, not just one, um, as we talked about earlier, it's, it's like one shoe doesn't fit all. And so knowing that the, the way an officer that is perhaps my age, you know, or an, an older generation may access help, it may be very different than how our younger generation does that. And so, you know, being generationally confident in your approaches, I think is, is super important in order to be able to reach out to these officers. And one of our, one of our, um, you know, the complexities of this is that many times our, our administrators, who tend to be our more experienced uh, police officers, who tend to be on the older end of that generation, is, is they need to really listen to how to communicate with their officers because it really has changed significantly over the last 20 years. So knowing how to reach your officers, making sure it's confidential, um, making sure an officer doesn't feel like they're out of control or that their job is at risk. And if you take those things away, I mean, our experience just doing what the, the things that we've done through through our organization is that we found out that once you get an officer in a place that they feel safe, they feel comfortable, and they feel empowered to talk about what's going on, um, they can work through it. They will talk. There's a the myth out there that police officers won't talk about um, the issues that they have is absolutely untrue. They just need to feel safe and have a place that they feel safe to do that. So I think that's the highest priority is setting up whatever that safe place is for them and then uh, and just encouraging it and encouraging their family to also know that they can access it. I think those are key uh, elements of it. Absolutely. Uh, Diane brings up phenomenal points and I, I absolutely validate exactly, um, you know, where she's coming from and, and her perspective on that. Um, uh, one, one thing that, that maybe, you know, just like, uh, Diane said, as far as that, you know, that one shoe doesn't fit all sometimes kind of, you know, being creative in the sense of creating a wellness challenge, you know, wellness challenge can mean not only physical, but like also emotional. Right. And, you know, that challenge can, you know, be in the form of, you know, just opportunities, right. Um, uh, you know, we, we do something here called a chief's talk in a chief's talk, uh, you know, where the commanders really embody that wellness and some of them will self-disclose, right? You know, when they uh, utilize behavioral health or they utilize peer support and that self-disclosure, that power, powerful aspect of self-disclosure, um, you know, in a, just in a, in a quick forum like that, speaking to the troops, I think just speaks volumes. Um, you first have to, re- you know, basically recognize um, somebody has to buy into that concept. So sometimes, you know, just like Diane mentioned, you know, if you have a, you know, a command, uh, a commander, you know, in the supportive realm, 
or, or an administrator, uh, you know, in, in a commander, but in an, in an administrative realm that, you know, has the seasoned years on and taking that leap of faith and kind of using the power of self-disclosure, I think just does wonders for that agency. And maybe again, just that trusted resource that, you know, younger personnel will go to, especially, you know, if there is some type of crisis or something that is evolving over time. So a wellness challenge, um, power of self-disclosure, you know, branching out into, uh, you know, different resources. You know, one of the things that uh, commanders or people in, in, in more, um, you know, higher positions, maybe lieutenant on up, just going to local receiving facilities, doing a, a little free talk for 30 minutes, right, of just making sure that there's connections there, uh, you know, with that particular resource and asking them, hey, you know, what, what are some of the nuances when, uh, you know, an officer needs help? A lot of times behavioral health clinicians that are non-police uh, related or police affiliated or public safety f affiliated for that matter, you know, sometimes they, you know, they don't know. So by that, uh, you know, commander or that, you know, administrator in, in that uh, particular realm, being able to kind of reach out to that, uh, you know, that nearest receiving facility and just taking the time to build those connections with a licensed behavioral health clinician or a nurse or an ARNP or even a physician for that matter, I think really goes above and beyond and really speaks volumes that uh, that particular agency is really concerned about their personnel. And, you know, making, you know, and at times, you know, that can certainly evolve into other good things where, Maybe that center does uh, kind of form that liaison and now starts doing support meetings for, for the area or a support night for family members. So that really doesn't take a lot of, of work or, or any type of authoritarian perspective. It's just more about being human and, you know, having empathy. Primary level empathy, I think, is very key, uh, you know, certainly in the support services realm of a department. Uh, in for that matter, but you know they first have to be educated, and you pick the people that have that primary level empathy uh, to really be at the forefront uh, in creating those strategies. You know, Rob has a really good point there, in, in talking about the um, the command level officers' access to resources and what a powerful impact that can be um, on the line level. To know that your commanders are also accessing those resources is hugely powerful. It's also one of those areas that we talk about barriers, that there are, there are some significant barriers for command level officers to seek help as well. And we talk about the officers uh, feeling like uh, there could be some stigma associated with that. A lot of times our commanders, uh, maybe they may feel stigma too, but a lot of times what they're feeling is that they have to be in control of everything and they have to be able to, to, to direct and lead. And uh, if, if they appear weak because they, quote, went and got um, some help, um, they fear that that could, you know, sometimes decrease their legitimacy within their agency. And uh, I can tell you out there from personal experience, some of our command level officers are those that are really needing that help after a, a career of 20, 30 years in, in, in law enforcement. There's no doubt that their lives have been changed by the career that they chose. And, and so I think that that powerful is it's kind of a disconnect, the powerful message that it can send if they do uh, seek help and then are willing to be to self-disclose and talk about that. It's hugely powerful, um, but there's also some barriers to that. So finding some ways to be creative to make sure that our commanders are also um, taking care of themselves um, 
that's that's a that could be a huge task that maybe IACP could take on. So we've heard a lot today about different strategies and steps that officers and agencies can take. What are some steps that family and friends of an officer can take to support an officer in crisis? Thank you again for the question. It's an excellent question. I think one of the first things is being non-judgmental. Uh, being non-judgmental really embodies, you know, that aspect where someone feels that it's very safe to to talk and to you know discuss whatever is bothering or you know agitating um, the individual. So I think being non-judgmental, uh, being very open in that sense, and um, you know, we kind of look at collectively. We look at certain qualities. You know, uh, you know, you know, when when we say, you know, that person is genuine or that person is sincere. I think that really embodies when you really come across somebody that's got compassion or is genuine. You know, you not only you know listen to the content of their message, but you also look at their nonverbals. And you know, kind of going back to some of the things that we've been talking about today, peer support members that you know, primarily are selected for just being intrinsically genuine or sincere, very, very uh, key to having on a team. And I think, you know, it's, it's no different than a family or a close friend and a peer uh, to be able to support, support that officer in crisis where they're not being judged. Um, and that's generally one of the things because for a long time, right, law enforcement is very reactive in that situation or you know i've heard many officers say well it's you know it's so punitive you know i always think i'm going to get in trouble if i do something or you know now with the body cams that's a big area to where you know officers leave you know they 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 do their job for 10 11 12 hour shifts and you know sometimes you know some of them have thoughts geez you know what if i i misspoke or i said this or i made a mistake that's a common one Right. So that gets cultivated over the years and sometimes becomes cemented in that officer's mind. So being non-judgmental, I think, has got to be one of the key aspects and paramount for somebody to feel safe, you know, that they could talk, uh, you know, about. And then the other thing is, is intermittently letting that person know, kind of like showing them the forest instead of the trees. Right. Using that as a metaphor. Um, being able to kind of pepper or just gently kind of interject the, the forest of, of where we're going, right? So if somebody is receiving information, you know, you can almost kind of, you know, depending on that skill level of that individual, almost kind of bring them to hopefully maybe where they want to go, uh, you know, go uh, from a goal perspective. So getting them to the promised land, you know, if the person is crying out for help, you know, you may want to mention that, you know, this sounds like a cry. Uh, you know, for help, but I'm listening to you. I'm hearing you. I'm not, I'm not, you know, chastising you um, and I'm here for you. So walking the walk in that type of situation, being non-judgmental, being supportive, uh, paraphrasing, using, you know, a- aspects of summarization to where, you know, you're, you're speaking in a way that they're going to understand and you're not talk- talking down to that person. You're not talking over that person, but you're summarizing in your own words that you've heard them loud and clear and you're there during their, uh, you know, their, their need for help. Talking to that officer and having that hard conversation, you know, they're, they're called hard conversations because they're not necessarily easy to initiate, but I've never had a hard conversation that I wasn't happy afterwards, but I at least uh, tried to have it. So have those hard conversations, express how you're worried about them. Um, you know, have some conversations. Some other notes I put is like, what's important right now? Let's, let's do a plan for the next four hours. What are we going to do for the next four hours just to bring it back to our reality right now? 
um, a really good strategy if somebody is in crisis is let's put some tennis shoes on and let's just go for a walk and let's walk together and let's walk. And after that first mile, second mile that you walk, there's just something therapeutic about the left, right, left, right going down the road that can sometimes bring somebody that's at a 10, maybe down to a seven. Uh, where then you can have that hard conversation. Let's just walk for a while or, or do some sort of exercise. It, it's hugely helpful in a crisis. And then I would just like to just to reiterate, because I thought it was such a brilliant idea that Rob brought up earlier, and that was the the idea of giving that officer some control, saying, I'm really worried about you right now, and you know who do you who do you trust most besides me? Uh, let's get them over here with you, and let's let's talk this through together, and let them pick and choose who that would be. And allowing them to save face, um, but at the same time getting you some backup that would be there with you to, you know, make it maybe slightly less, you know, personal and relational and more about what the actual crisis is. And then looking out for those peer support teams that are out there. This is exactly what they're trained to do. And so reaching out to that peer support and getting some help is, is could be hugely important. Great. Thank you so much, Diane. All right. So we're at the last question. We've heard a lot today about different ways that officers can access support and different strategies for them to cope. How can family members ensure their own well-being as they support their officer? Diane? Yeah, I, th- I think I would like to go back to just kind of what we've, what we've already reiterated is that, you know, being married to a law enforcement officer also changes you. It changes the dynamics of your family and acknowledging that. Acknowledging that things might be a little bit more challenging because of what my spouse or my significant other goes through every day. So first, just acknowledging that it, that it could be different and that your, that your perspective of what's going on could be a little skewed based on you know, your experiences that you're in right now. So just that same thing, reach out to a trusted peer, talk to them about what you're going through, look for availability of you know, either some peer support for you or for you and your uh, spouse together. Um, you know, it's, Having a, a check-in once a year with a mental health professional is a sign of strength. It's a sign of being in control of, of your destiny, of your future, of your, of your marriage. And so I think having that you know, once a year check-in and, and kind of dump your bucket. And so you can, so you can start with a fresh bucket and then the, the little things that seemed like they were so huge and traumatic, you know, if your bucket has been dumped and you're now back to you know, your, your normal um, resiliency level, they're much easier to deal with. So I just think having that once a year mental health check-in, like let's go talk through how things are going and have strategies for the next year, I think is a great strategy in order to make it through a 20, 30, 40, 50 year marriage to a law enforcement officer. It is possible. Yeah, I think Diane is is absolutely uh, hitting it on all cylinders with with her feedback on that. And, um, you know, this has been a year that is just so unprecedented. Uh, we've never had something like that. You know, I'm approaching the big 5-0 and uh, I've never, you know, remembered a situation like this and, you know, ever been involved in a situation like this. And it's given me a lot of time to reflect, not just, you know, as a police psychologist, but certainly just as a human being. And I think one of the things that has been a takeaway that, that my, me and my family have talked about, it's brought us closer together this year because we've all been in the house and my daughter, you know, had to, to move back, you know, down from, from school. And what I've learned, you know, and I can just speak just as Rob and, and just as a human being is, is basically self-care, right? And kind of m- modeling um, that element of self-care, but also kind of getting creative with it. What does is, what is self-care start with? Well, 
it really starts with a thought, right? And a lot of times for law enforcement, as I've tried to kind of help them over the years, law enforcement is predominantly, um, in a sense, uh, under the domain of shoulds, woulds, coulds, always, must, never. I'll say it again, shoulds, woulds, coulds, always, must, never. And then another caveat is our what ifs. Constantly and consistently training for what ifs. What if this happens? What if that happens? We're prepared. And that spills over sometimes into family life. And I certainly know it, it did for me. And this 2020 has given me time to reflect and really kind of change that perspective as best as I can, going back to what Diane eloquently talked about, that aspect of what we can control, that sphere of influence. So that sphere of influence of what I can control is I can control my thoughts. I can work on, instead of doing shoulds, woulds, coulds, always, must, never, and what ifs, I could start going into, hey, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to get through this year. This year's been rough. How about things I'm trying, right? Kind of coining that phrase. Instead of a should, I'm trying. I'm working on it. I'm doing the best that I can with what I have and the resources that I have. I'm hopeful. So just simple phrases that's, that, that a family member can kind of fill their minds with or be coached or educated on can really make a world of difference to kind of take the pressure off. Um, you know, if, if you're going into a test, right, uh, taking a, a captain's test, you know, or a lieutenant's test for that matter, and, you know, or a sergeant's exam, if, you know, that officer goes into that situation thinking, well, I know the material, and then when that person gets there, oh my gosh, you know, I should have done this, or I should have said that. Well, if, you know, we go into it or the person goes into it and the person has more of a mindset, well, I'm going to do the best that I can. Let's see what happens. You know, that the edge gets taken off, that additional pressure gets taken off. It's no different than in life, right? So I think that's an important um, aspect that, that I would recommend, uh, you know, specifically for family uh, during this time is, is to really kind of take that um, that aspect of, of taking that pressure off by really looking at the language. And I use a simple phrase for remembering it. Thoughts become words, words become actions. So, um, you know, a lot of control there with your thoughts. So hopefully that was helpful. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Diane. And thank you both for joining us today to talk through different approaches to preventing officer suicide or intervening when an officer may need help. These discussions can help change agency culture and prevent law enforcement suicide. We appreciate your time today and look forward to connecting with you in the future. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This project was supported in whole or in part by Cooperative Agreement Number 2018-CKW-XK008 awarded by the U.S. Department of Justice, Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services. The opinions contained herein are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific individuals, agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the speakers, the IACP, or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues we hear today. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can visit learn.theiecp.org slash podcast to view show notes from today's episode and to find additional ways you can learn from leaders in the field.